Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Appalachian Mountains, also called the Appalachians, are a great highland system of North America, the eastern counterpart of the Rocky Mountains. Extending for almost 2,000 miles from the Canadian province of Newfoundland to central Alabama in the United States, the Appalachian Mountains form a natural barrier between the eastern coastal plain and the vast interior lowlands of North America. As a result, they have played a vital role in the settlement and development of the entire continent. Some of the oldest mountain ranges on the planet and a place that had such a big part in forming this country that they are ripe with folklore. Today I'm going to discuss some of the legends that the lands around Appalachia are bursting with. And we're also going to meet Eric and Jen, a couple who gave up everything to follow a dream only to end up in a nightmare. I'd like you to accompany me on a voyage through imagination a place that lies just between shadow and light, where the truth is sometimes stranger than the fiction. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Since settling in the mountains in the 18th and 19th centuries, 
Appalachian people have developed a unique blend of cultures that has their own way of thinking. Have you ever stopped yourself before walking under a ladder or held your breath when passing a cemetery? Things I'm sure we've talked about on this podcast before. Maybe you've even sped up on a mountain road at night thinking you see a glowing red eye in the woods watching you. Appalachian culture is known for superstitions and legends like these. While they may not be as widely practiced today, these myths and mountain folklore were passed down by countless generations. Appalachian culture is full of its own myths, legends, and ghost stories, many of which were made famous by TV shows such as X-Files and Mountain Monsters. The story of the Bell Witch is one of the most popular examples of Appalachian mountain folklore. It began in Robertson County, Tennessee. This legend centers around the Bell family. The Bell Witch, who was thought to be a woman named Kate Batts, was supposedly cheated in a land purchase by John Bell, the patriarch of the Bell family. The hauntings began sometime between 1817 and 1821, when the Bell Witch would show up disguised as an animal, such as like a dog or a bird. She would often focus on John's daughter Betsy Bell, pulling the sheets off her bed or even physically harming her with kicks, punches, and scratches. John Bell grew so concerned by these violent escalations that he shared his story with a family friend, James Johnston. After Johnston experienced the spirit firsthand, word quickly began to spread. The Appalachian ghost story eventually became famous enough to reach General Andrew Jackson. According to legend, Jackson and his party set up their tents outside of the Bell home. One man claiming he had knowledge of how to deal with witches boasted that his silver bullets were keeping that witch at bay. To punish him, the witch set her sights on the man, giving him some beating that had Jackson's men begging to leave. After John Bell's mysterious death in 1820, the Bell witch continued to haunt his family. She even forced Betsy to break off her engagement with Joshua Gardner before eventually disappearing for good. There are some stories that claim that she promised to return to haunt John Bell's direct descendants in 1935, but there were no reports made. To experience these Appalachian legends for yourself, visit the historic Bell Witch Cave, which is located in Adams, Tennessee. Our old buddy Bigfoot has even had some time to spend up in Appalachia. Since the mid-1800s, thousands of Bigfoot sightings have been reported all over the United States, including dozens of reported sightings in the North Georgia Mountains. Today, you could celebrate this mythical Appalachian monster at the Bigfoot Festival in Marion, North Carolina. At this annual festival, you can expect educational panels, a Bigfoot calling contest, a costume contest, and Bigfoot-themed dishes. Unfortunately, this year's festival was held on May 13th and 14th. I'm actually really sad I missed it. Found in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, the Brown Mountain Lights are a true Appalachian mountain mystery. Locals and tourists alike have reported glowing orb-like lights in blue, white, orange, and red hovering approximately 15 feet off the ground in the Brown Mountain area of Morganton, North Carolina. Legend tells of a brutal battle between Cherokee and Catawba warriors on Brown Mountain, which left many dead on the battlefield. In the evenings, Catawba women went searching for their sons, husbands, brothers, and fathers, using torchlights to guide them. Many claim that the lights seen today are the spirits of the Catawba women still searching for their loved ones. The first recorded sighting of the Brown Mountain Lights happened in 1771, when German engineer John William Gerard de Braum wrote about seeing the lights in his journal. 
but his written account stated that he saw the lights at a consistent time every night, leading many people to believe he was actually seeing train lights in the distance. Recorded accounts of Brown Mountain light sightings happened throughout the 20th century, especially as the Linville area gained access to electricity. While reports of sightings of the colorful lights are known for their inconsistency, the lights are typically seen at night, especially after rainfall. The Brown Mountain Overlook, Wiseman's View Overlook, and Lost Cave Cliffs Overlook are the most popular places to see them. All those lookouts are located near Asheville and Boone, North Carolina, and offer great scenic vistas at really any time of the day. This is more of a travel thing if you guys are interested. Another popular myth in Appalachian folklore is the Flatwoods Monster, which originated in Braxton County, West Virginia. On September 12, 1952, Edward May, Freddie May, Neil Nunley, and Tommy Hayer were playing at the Flatwoods Elementary when they spotted a light shooting across the sky. On their way to see the light, the boys stopped to tell their mother, Kathleen May, who asked National Guardsman Eugene Lemon to join them. When they arrived at the site of the light's crash, they saw a pulsing red light and a 10-foot-tall creature with twisted hands and a glowing green face that seemed to levitate off the ground. When the creature hissed at them, they fled. The event made local and national news and even prompted an official U.S. Air Force inquiry. Today, tourists from all over the country come to visit the home of the Flatwoods Monster. To learn about this Appalachian scary story, visit the Flatwoods Monster Museum in Sutton, West Virginia. And don't forget to stop at the spot along the way. You'll find alien-themed sandwiches and Flatwood Monster souvenirs. Anything to make a buck. I'll take two. Now, according to both Appalachian folktales and Cherokee legend, a group of pale-skinned humanoids called the Moon-Eyed People might be hiding somewhere in the Appalachian Range. Typically associated with the small town of Murphy, North Carolina, the Moon-Eyed People are short, stout, white-skinned, with bearded faces and large blue eyes. I mean, if you change that to tall and change the eyes to green, that's a perfect description of me. Am I a moon-eyed people? Their eyes were supposedly so sensitive to the sun that they remained nocturnal, which is why they're called moon-eyed. Still me. Legend says that the local Native American tribes waited for the full moon to drive the moon-eyed people from their underground caves. The bright light made them weak, forcing them to flee into other parts of Appalachia for good. Unlike other Appalachian monsters, the Moon-Eyed people were considered to be a distinctively separate race of people, rather than supernatural beings. It might seem obvious to people digging into this, but Moon-Eyed people were most likely just European settlers. But what makes the legend so shocking is that it dates back hundreds of years before the discovery of America. So are the Moon-Eyed people just another Appalachian mountain scary story? or just early European settlers who never received their due credit. Today, exhibits of the Moon-Eyed People can be found at the Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy. And if you find yourself in LJ, Georgia, Fort Mountain, which is a Georgia State Park, contains the ruins of an 850-foot-long stone wall that is said to have been constructed by the mysterious tribe. Made famous by the 1997 episode of The X-Files and the 2002 film The Mothman Prophecies, the Mothman is a fearsome creature with broad wings and red eyes who originated in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The story of the Mothman began on November 15, 1966. Two couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry, and Steve and Mary Mallet, reported seeing a large flying humanoid with a 10-foot wingspan and glowing red eyes following their car. 
Similar reports came in over the next few days, and the sensational story was soon picked up by a local newspaper. Mason County Sheriff George Johnson believed it had to be a large bird, because the stories fit the description of the Sandhill Crane, which had a red forehead and wingspans recorded up to 7 feet 7 inches. On December 15, 1967, the Mothman was credited for the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which killed 46 people. For more information on this infamous Appalachian monster, visit the Mothman Museum in Point Pleasant, where you can take a selfie with the massive Mothman statue, displayed prominently outside. That's terrifying. You can also celebrate the Appalachian myth at the annual Mothman Festival, of course there is, which typically happens the third weekend in September. Hey, we can make it! This year, the festival falls on September 17th and 18th. The festival features guest speakers, live bands, vendors, cosplay, and even a 5K run. Oh, boy, oh, boy. The Wampus Cat, also known as the Cherokee Death Cat, is a large cat similar to a mountain lion or cougar, with tan yellow fur, six legs, and large yellow eyes. Wow, there are a lot of monsters in Appalachia. The legend holds that a Cherokee female was cursed by a tribal elder, for witnessing a sacred pre-hunt ceremony. She hid under the pelt of this large cat and got turned into the half-woman, half-beast we hear about in famous Appalachian myth. Forever left to wander alone through the mountains, the wampus cat acts out in anger at being cut off from her former life. She's known for standing on her hind legs and using her supernatural powers to drive her victims to insanity. Despite being a story about Cherokee people, the wampus cat folklore did not originate with the Cherokees. Instead, the name came from the Goldsboro News Argus newspaper in North Carolina. In 1964, a hairy ape man, who sounds suspiciously like Bigfoot, was reported to be roaming around US-70. The newspaper named the mysterious creature the Wampus Cat, and the name stuck. The name likely derives from the word Catawampus, a mountain folklore saying that describes a boogeyman or something that has gone badly. Strange Ways Brewing, which has a location in Richmond and Fredericksburg, Virginia, brews a beer named after the Wampus Cat. The name was also used for a mythical creature in J.K. Rowling's Pottermore story, The History of the Magic in North America. One of the most famous stories of the Appalachian Mountains is uh, the story of Dennis Martin. On June 13, 1969, William Martin brought his two sons, Douglas and Dennis Martin, and his father, Clyde, on a camping trip. It was Father's Day weekend, and the family planned to hike throughout the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The hike was a family tradition for the Martins, and the first day went smoothly. Six-year-old Dennis managed to keep up with the most experienced hikers. The Martins met up with family friends on the second day and continued to Spence Field, a highland meadow in the Western Smokies popular for its views. As the adults gazed at the scenic mountain range, the boys snuck off to pull a prank on their parents. But it didn't go as planned. During the prank, Dennis vanished into the woods, and his family never saw him again. The child's disappearance would launch the largest search and rescue effort in the park's history. After the older boys jumped out of the woods trying to scare the parents, Dennis was no longer with them. As the minutes ticked by, William knew something was wrong. He began calling for his son, confident the boy would respond, but there was no answer. The adults quickly searched the woods nearby, hiking up and down several trails looking for Dennis. William covered miles of trails, frantically calling for his son. Without radios or any way to communicate with the outside world, the Martins came up with a plan. Clyde, Dennis's grandfather, hiked nine miles to the Cades Cove Ranger Station for help. When night fell, a thunderstorm moved in. 
In a matter of hours, the storm dropped three inches of rain on the Smoky Mountains, washing out trails and leaving behind no evidence of Dennis Martin. At 5 a.m. on June 15th, the search for Dennis Martin commenced. The National Park Service put together a crew of 30. The search party quickly swelled up to 240 people as volunteers poured in. The search party soon included park rangers, college students, firefighters, Boy Scouts, police, and 60 Green Berets. Without clear direction or an organizational plan, the searchers crossed the national park looking for evidence. The search continued day after day with no sight of Dennis. Helicopters and planes took to the air to search a growing patch of the national park. On June 20th, Dennis's seventh birthday, nearly 800 people participated in the search. They included members of the Air National Guard, U.S. Coast Guard, and National Park Service. The next day, the efforts peaked an astonishing 1,400 searchers. A week into the search, the National Park Service put together a plan for what to do if they discovered Dennis's body. And yet, over 13,000 hours of searching yielded nothing. Unfortunately, the volunteers may have accidentally destroyed clues as to what happened to Dennis Martin. As the days flew past, it became more and more clear that the boy would not be found alive. So, what happened to Dennis Martin? The search and rescue effort gradually lost steam with no sight of Dennis. The Martin family offered a reward of $5,000 for information. In response, they received a flood of calls from psychics claiming to know what happened to their son. More than half a century later, no one knows what happened to Dennis Martin that day he went missing in the Smoky Mountains. The most plausible theory ranged from abduction to having died of exposure and eaten by a bear or feral pigs in the park. But there are some people who believe Dennis was the victim of a more vicious attack by cannibalistic feral humans who are said to live undetected in the national park. And the reason nothing was ever found of his body was because they were hidden far from view in the safety of their colony. For their part, the Martin family believes someone may have kidnapped their son. Harold Key was seven miles from Spence Field that day Dennis went missing. That very afternoon, Key heard a sickening scream. Then Key spotted an unkempt stranger hurrying through the woods. Was that event connected with the disappearance? No one really knows. The six-year-old may have wandered off and found himself lost in the woods. The terrain with marked with steep ravines may have hid the child's body, or wildlife may have attacked him. Years after Dennis disappeared, a ginseng hunter found a child skeleton about three miles downhill from where Dennis went missing. The man waited to report the skeleton since he had illegally taken ginseng from the national park. In 1985, the ginseng hunter contacted the park service ranger. The ranger put together a group of 30 seasoned rescuers, but they could not find the skeleton. The mystery of Dennis Martin's disappearance will likely never be solved, despite the massive effort to find the missing boy. Hey folks, I want to take this time to give a shout to my patrons. The story that follows was actually inspired by one of my patrons sending me a message about, hey, check out the feral people of Appalachia. And that got the creative juices flowing for the original story that's about to follow. If you want to join my Patreon, patreon.com slash hauntedamericanhistory. We're doing some cool stuff over there. I'm reading H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. We got ad-free episodes, shout-outs. Obviously, if you have a kind of like show ideas or episode ideas, or hey, you know, this would be kind of cool, that's the easiest way to reach out to me. If you want to support the show in other ways, leave a review, Apple, Spotify. Thanks so much. Thank, I, I just, I can't thank you guys enough. I'm excited to announce that I have a new podcast coming soon. 
It's a standalone series, so probably about 10 episodes in length of just a single story. But guys, when I tell you this is one of the most frightening things that I've ever heard, and I'm not just saying that because I'm helping create it, it's, it's going to be amazing. So stay tuned for that. That'll be dropping soon. I'll uh, announce the name of it on all my socials and in a upcoming podcast. And as always, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. In the fall of 2019, Jen and Eric whose friends referred to them as generic, it's a joke so bad that it actually makes it back around to becoming good, decided to sell all their earthly possessions and chase a dream. Jen was a photographer by education and had some success selling some of her shots to various publications. She adored to shoot the outdoors and was enamored with the beautiful landscapes this country provided. They decided that before it got too late, they would go after this dream together. They took all the money that they got and purchased a used Class C motorhome and jumped in feet first to start living that hashtag van life. They traveled around the United States photographing and videoing their life along the way. Their YouTube channel had really started to pick up popularity and Jen's portfolio was growing day by day. They were doing it. They weren't living extravagant, not by any means of the definition. There were some days at first that they had to decide on whether they would spend money on gas or food. But nowadays, they were comfortable. Also, living on the road, you learn to hack the system. For instance, there are tons of places throughout the states that will pay for your campsite in exchange for work. Water, electric, and in most cases, cable, all included. Once they learned this, the planning got easy. They had a reoccurring gimmick on their channel where they visited places that popular musicians based songs on. This led them to West Virginia. They wanted to see if it was as beautiful as John Denver made it out to be. And surprisingly enough, they had never been, even though they're both from Pennsylvania and partially share a border. They wanted to start off the beaten path. Besides, the entire shtick of their channel was showing the beauty of the road less traveled. Jen was also working a commission for a travel magazine that was doing an article about the sites of the Appalachian Mountains. What better place to start than the Blue Ridge, 
It was a rainy summer evening when they pulled their rig into the campground of America off the Blue Ridge Parkway. Unhooking their Jeep from their RV was pretty much all the setup they had that night. They were losing daylight and knew that they had an early morning and wanted to plan the day the best they could. They were heading about 40 minutes away to a small town named Landry that sat at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The town was so small it didn't even show up on Google Maps. Jen found it on an old road atlas that Eric had. The only amenities icon that the town had listed next to its name was a fork and spoon. So they planned to stop there for a quick bite and maybe talk to a few locals to get an idea of where to shoot. This was a tried and true strategy that had worked for them time and time again. When in doubt, go to the diner. The next morning, they got up before the sun and made their way to Landry. As soon as they pulled into town, they saw that the Atlas was wrong. It had other things besides a restaurant. So what if they were all in the same building? The Landry Grocer was a combination restaurant, gas station, and general store. Pulling up out front, they noticed the ambulance parked in front of the building and hoped the cook wasn't dead because they could really go for some eggs right about now. Walking into this place, you saw a few small aisles with shelves stocked with essentials, bread, cereal, canned goods, and cleaning supplies. A small freezer section against the wall next to the doors. Past the aisles along the back was a counter with a few tables scattered about. Sitting at the counter drinking coffee were two EMS workers. Whew, that explains the ambulance. There were a handful of people sitting about eating breakfast. They all seemed to be talking to each other, but when they saw Jen and Eric walk up, a conversation came to a halt. The older man standing behind the counter, with a stained apron, spoke up and broke the silence. Sit anywhere you like. The couple took their seat at the table in the middle of the floor, and browsed the simple menu that was on each table, wrapped in plastic and acting as a placemat. You folks ain't from round here. A man dressed in dirty mechanics coverall spoke to them from the table at the far end of the place. The two EMS workers at the counter turned to them to have a peek, and the old man sitting at the table next to them peeked up from his home fries. No, no, we're not. We're just passing through, Eric said with a friendly smile. What brings you to these parts? The man from behind the counter said as he was walking up to the table with a small pad in his hand preparing to take their order. Well, we have a YouTube channel where we drive around the country and take in the sights of small-town America, take pictures and blog about it, Jen answered. YouTubes, the old man at the table next to them replied. Do you know Mr. Beast? Eric, fighting back a laugh, just replied, No, unfortunately we don't. My grandson showed me him. He's a funny fella. Yeah, we like his stuff. Gah, Mr. Beast, the old man says while dreamingly staring off into space. The counterman, who introduced himself as Cliff, took their order and made his way back behind the counter to call their order into the kitchen. Lots of great pictures places around here. Real pretty country. The land out by Grant River is real nice, the mechanic said. Just don't go too far up that river. That's the kinder place out there. Private property, Cliff said while pouring fresh coffee for the gentleman sitting at the counter. Pity, too. The falls up there are gorgeous. Well, I'm sure if we went to the house and asked nicely, they would let us take some pictures, no? Jen asked excitedly. No, you don't want to do that, said the old man. Bad things happen to people go near that house. Now, those are just old wives' tales, the taller of the EMTs spoke up from his stool at the counter. Nuh-uh. My cousin was out there hunting on their land, and he said he saw some weird things over there. Ghosts and a monster that looked like a skinned bear. Your cousin is a drunk who wouldn't know a bear from a beaver, the EMT said. No, no, I heard a bunch of college kids went by the falls one night to drink beers and fool around. No one has seen them again. I also heard about the ghosts, the mechanic added. I heard that if you see one wandering the land as soon as it looks at you, 
You become so scared you just get stuck. And it sucks out your soul. That's just bull. You don't know anyone that's been up there. The EMT answered, shaking his head and laughing. They're just private people. This is how rumors start, the man said, pointing his spoon at the people sitting in the restaurant. After breakfast, which was surprisingly good, it usually is at these kind of hole-in-the-wall places, Jen and Eric headed back to their jeep. On their way out, crossing the parking lot, Jen said to Eric, So we're going up to those falls, right? Yep, Eric responded immediately. When they got to the car, they checked Google Maps, but couldn't find this river they were talking about. They decided to check the atlas again, and there it was, sitting right next to the town. They followed the road map until they found the river and the small dirt road that ran up next to it. Up toward the top of the hill, shadowed by the mountain, was a farmhouse surrounded by a tall iron fence. That's gotta be the kinder place, Eric said as Jen was digging through her camera bag for lenses. The fence seemed to get closer to the road as closer they got to the top of the river. Once the falls were in sight, the dirt road ended, and the fence came right to the riverbank. The fence was peeled back and the earth was flattened by the river as if people had been sneaking in for quite a while. They parked their jeep close to the fence, grabbed their bag, and shimmied around it. They hiked up close to the top of the falls, and the men from the diner were right. It was beautiful up here. The waterfall crashing down on the rocks in front of them was breathtaking. The wild flowers growing from the trees that surrounded the river was something that neither of them have ever seen before. There were trees up here that were definitely not native to West Virginia as far as they knew. They walked through a grove of weeping willows to get over here. Jen climbed out onto a big rock off the riverbank and lined up a great shot of the willows as the sun casted rays through them onto the flowers that surrounded them. Checking her work in the camera is when she saw it initially, peeking out from behind one of the trees, looking right at them. It looked like a Rottweiler, but this was the biggest rot she's ever seen. Its face was scarred up and its teeth were exposed, and it was frothing at the mouth with spit thick like egg white. She looked up quickly from the camera and saw it charging in their direction. She screamed for her husband and jumped from the rock to the shoreline, nearly slipping and falling into the water. If she didn't catch her balance, she surely would have ended up a meal. They had about 30 yards on this thing once they started running up the hill. It was charging them from the direction they entered, so running back toward their car was out. They had to try to circle around. Frantically crashing through trees and brush, desperately looking for something to climb up, the thing was gaining on them. Running as fast as their legs could carry them, their calves were burning and their lungs felt like they were loaded with razor blades. Running like their lives literally depended on it. They ran until they could run no further, because they came upon a rocky wall that led up to the falls. The only direction they can go was left. To their right was the river, and back was into the jaws of whatever kind of dog that was. They stopped for a second when they hit the wall, thinking maybe they lost it because they didn't hear it anymore. Maybe it caught the scent of a rabbit or a squirrel and decided to go after an easier meal. That idea was quickly dashed from their heads when the creature exploded from the tree line and clamped its dripping jaws onto the pack that was sitting on Eric's back. Its paws were massive and they had jagged claws protruding from the toes covered in scabs and moss. Its body was just as scarred as its face. Eric slipped out of the pack and the dog began to ragdoll it. Jen grabbed her husband and they started running along the rock wall until they reached a small cave. They ducked inside, hoping to hide out until this thing went away. The cave was deep. They ventured further inside. The shadow on the floor cast by the light outside gets shorter with each step they took. They had thought that maybe they got lucky, until they heard the creature's panting breath. 
and saw its silhouette cast onto the floor behind them. Quickening their pace, they headed deeper into the cave. The clicking of claws echoed off the rock walls around them. The deeper they went in, the tighter the cave walls closed around them. They just barely squeezed through into an opening when they saw a light just beyond them. They made a beeline for it, hoping they would get them out of there. The light was actually coming from behind a large wooden door that was ajar. They pushed it open and slammed the door shut behind them. They were inside a long hallway that had six doors leading to a stairwell, three doors on each side. This must be the house we saw, Eric said to Jen. Their basement leads to a cave? Jed asked confused. That's not too creepy. Who knows? Lots of these old places here used to run moonshine. Wouldn't surprise me at all if this was one of those spots, Eric answered. They started making their way down the hall, peeking into the open rooms as they passed. They were almost at the stairs when they heard the sound of footsteps approaching them from the top. They quickly backed up and retreated into one of the closed doors, slowly opening up and softly shutting it behind them. Leaning close to the door, listening for the footsteps to get louder. Jen turned and leaned her back to the door to take a breath when she saw the woman laying on the dirt floor, arms tied to a support beam with a gag in her mouth. The woman's eyes opened up wide as she spotted the couple and began to frantically struggle and mumble through her gag. Oh my God, Eric, what do we do? Jen said to her husband. They began to walk toward the woman when they heard the knob of the door behind them begin to turn. Quickly, they dashed behind a stack of wooden crates in the corner of the room while the tied-up woman's eyes went between them and the door. Stepping into the room was an enormous man in dirty overalls. His feet were bare and black with neglect. He walked toward the tied-up woman, all while she flailed her tied-up body against the ground. He bent down and his long, greasy hair hung in front of his face as he scooped the woman up off the ground with arms that were corded with muscle. In his other hand, he used a large cleaver to cut the rope that tied her to the beam. He dragged her kicking into the middle of the room and hung her from the rope around her wrists to a hook that dangled from the ceiling. He quickly brought the knife up to her throat and stuck the knife in slowly, sawing it back and forth, leaning his head back in ecstasy as the blood from her body splashed onto his hand and ran down his arm, dripping to the floor and pooling at his feet. Jen, about to let out a scream, was grabbed around the mouth by her husband and pulled close to his chest down behind the crates. Tears poured down her face. In a fast, practiced motion, the man unhooked the girl, spun her around and hooked her back up by the binds around her ankles to let her bleed out like a freshly slaughtered pig. He then made an about-face and headed out the door he came in, heading toward the cave. As soon as they heard the door open and close, Eric quickly jumped up and ran to the door to have a peek. The coast was clear. He said to his wife, We have to get out of here. He helped her to her feet, and it took a few seconds to get their composure, and they headed for the stairs up into the house, slowly making their way up, trying hard not to creak any steps. The house upstairs was very dark. Even though it was still very early, the windows were draped with dark, heavy curtains. The furniture was old and dusty. It was messy, and they had to carefully watch where they were walking, as the floor was littered with boxes, tools, and old car parts. Their plan was to head out the front door and then as quickly as humanly possible run to the road. They had to get to their car. Both of their cell phones were inside the pack that they ditched, so calling for help was out. They spotted the front door after coming out of the basement and crept along the hallway. Once at the door, Eric started to twist the locks open slowly. The door had quite a few deadbolts. After the click of the second lock, they heard a voice from upstairs yell down. 
That you, mother? They backed away from the door and into a room adjacent from the steps. It had two old dusty couches, and sitting in the middle of them was an old coffee table. There was another door way in the back corner that looked like it led into the kitchen. Making their way toward the open door, the person from upstairs was making their way down. Backing up slowly, Jen bumped into a rocking chair sitting against the wall. In the chair sat an old woman who looked so old that she would crumble if the wind blew too hard. Jen almost screamed at the sight but caught herself as she brought her hands up and clasped them over her lips. Eric grabbed his wife and brought her into the kitchen just as the man from upstairs reached the bottom floor. The house floor plan seemed to circle around. The other side of the kitchen had a door that looked like it leads back into the hallway to the front door. In the other room, they hear the footsteps heading into the living room. The couple are making their way carefully through the kitchen. It's as filthy in here as it was in the rest of the house. Walking past the table in the center of the room is when the couple finally reach their breaking point. The smell coming out of this room was putrid. What's making that smell was even worse. Organs. What looked like human organs are piled in a grotesque, viscous puddle on the kitchen table. A stomach, large intestine, a heart. The vomit catches in Eric's mouth when he spots a human hand. Jen sees it as well, and they both quickly turn to run from the table and directly into the face of the old woman from the rocking chair standing behind them. Her pale eyes wide, her mouth missing all but three rotten teeth, wide open, calling for the rest of the home's occupants. Jen and Eric dart into the hallway, but standing at the other end of the front door was the blood-soaked man and the older balding man wearing a green flannel shirt tucked into blue jeans, held up by suspenders. In his hand, he had a rusty pitchfork. House guests! The old man shouted happily before throwing his pitchfork at the couple and slashing Eric's shoulder with a graze from the rusted tool. It stuck into the wall behind them. Jen grabbed her husband's hand and they both retreated back down into the basement, all while the voice of the man shouted inaudible commands to his companion. They headed down to the hall at the bottom of the steps and toward the door that led to the cave, swinging it open and slamming it closed behind them. Wasting no time, they shimmied through the tight rock wall and into the cave and back toward the outside world. Back outside now, the warm sun beating down on top of them, they quickly made their way along the cliffside back toward the river. Filthy and bleeding, hearts racing, they spot their bag about 10 yards from the wall. Eric runs to grab it when he's attacked by that snarling creature. It bites down on his right hand, blood spurting from his right hand, which is now essentially only a thumb. The dog monster swung its head and spiked the four fingers to the ground next to it. It dug its paws into the ground and readied itself for another attack when Jen swung the pack that was full of their cameras and equipment, hitting the beast in the mouth and breaking its bottom jaw. She picked up her bloodied husband and draped his arm over her shoulder, with the bag in her hand, and she walked him down toward the river, dragging him the last 50 or so yards. He was losing a lot of blood and blacking out. She got them to the fence and had to drop Eric into the river and jump in after him to pick him up and place him on the other side of the fence. Once they got to their car, Jen dug out their cell phones and called 911. Eric, propped up in a sitting position against the car's tire, was drifting in and out of consciousness. The last image he remembers before going out completely was his wife on the phone pacing back and forth in front of him, begging him to keep his eyes open. When he finally comes to, he's lying on a stretcher in the back of an ambulance. Bouncing on the dirt road, he sees his wife sitting on the bench next to the stretcher being worked on by one of the EMTs from breakfast. Still groggy, with glazed over eyes, the EMT who was driving speaks up. Hey, you with us, buddy? 
What happened? Eric and his haze answers. Fucking psychos, that's what happened. Listen, you gotta call the police. They killed someone up in that house. They're fucking eating people up there. There were body parts, innards all over the place. You gotta call the police and get a fucking SWAT team up there, something. See? Now you have been there. Eric tries to sit up and look at the driver, wondering what he was talking about, when he realized he was restrained. His eyes began to clear and he looked over at his wife and noticed that the front of her shirt was covered in blood and the slash mark that was across her throat. A voice comes in from over the radio. How's it going, Billy? It's going, Pa. We got him. Head him back up now. Again, I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. I'd like to give a shout to my newest patrons, Elizabeth and Alexis. Thank you so much for joining. Your support really means the world to me. Later, folks. <laughs>